runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 297 with guest Don Rosanova, recorded Tuesday, November 20th, 2012. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Cavill, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. Uh, it's still the U.S. Thanksgiving week, although it'll be somewhat further along by the time you hear this show. Uh, and I'm on the break uh, during the .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2012 launch road trip, so I've had a chance to sit down and record a few shows. And today my guest is Dan Rosanova, who's a three-time BizTalk MVP, although they don't even call them BizTalk MVPs anymore. Is it Integrated Systems? Uh Integration. Integration systems, which is really what BizTalk's all about. Uh, 14 years of experience delivering solutions on Microsoft and Solaris platforms in financial services, insurance, banking, telecommunications, and logistics industries. Uh, and his recent focus has been on evolutionary computing, advanced message queue protocol, AMQP, something I'm certainly paying attention to, uh, HeyDoop, and GPU computing. Welcome, Dan. Hi, thanks. Uh, so... Where, you want to go down the big data rat hole because that, it's certainly the topic of discussion these days. You know, it really is. And uh, when I look back on it now, it reminds me of where the term cloud was about four years ago. Right, right. Where we, it, where everybody was using it, not really understanding what they were going to do with it. A- absolutely. But I think we're actually finally turning a corner a little bit with the big data one. And we're starting to get the real ideas of what to do here. And it's just been connecting a lot of different streams of development and thought and research that have been going on uh, sort of in isolation, but for a very long time and, and really bringing them to the market now in an in integrated package. Because I have customers out there who don't call themselves doing work in, quote, big data, but have enormous databases and even have great OLAP queues or data warehouses. What makes big data big data? So what's interesting about big data is that it's not necessarily just the size of the data or number of fields you have or, or megabytes or petabytes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's often the volume, velocity, variety, and variability. So those are the big factors, the four Vs that really drive something to be big data. You can have a relatively small data set, but if the relationship between that data is very complex, then it becomes big data from a computational standpoint. Uh, whereas if you have simpler calculations but a very, very large data set, you're now talking about big data more from a space standpoint. So it's like a classic uh, algorithms analysis. Mm-hmm. You have time and space complexity. And some people's problems will fall in one extreme, but most will fall in the middle. And more and more often, uh, even mid-sized organizations are starting to face really serious big data problems because we're we're creating so much and saving so much more data than we ever have in the past. Still wrestling with this idea that this sounds like data warehousing from 10 years ago. I can see that, and it's certainly there are some relationships to it. Uh, data warehousing is is more of, I, in my mind at least, moving away from using the OLTP system, the right. actual transactional running system, to do reporting. Whereas a lot of the big data, part part of this is going to be things that we don't necessarily know the value of when right. we store, and they may not be structured 
in a way that's easy for us to store in, a, in a, what you would see as a normal data warehouse. Right. So it's along those lines, but there are some important differences. I mean, the big thing with data warehousing for me has always been it's all about the ETL, right? Like how we come up with this uh, you know, plan of how we're going to integrate all this data together and then turn all our different disparate data sources into something that can be connected together. Absolutely. And that's actually one of the more exciting areas about something like Hadoop is that instead of doing this big plan up front, you're really imposing structure on something that may not have much or any structure when you start off. So instead of having to do the upfront heavy lifting in a large project to, just to get started, mm-hmm. a lot of this is more uh, ad hoc and uh, you don't need as much uh, upfront planning or structure. And, and actually, that's kind of where the cloud also comes in to make this even more uh, compelling, really. So are we just hacking our way through this? Um, to a certain extent, we are. Uh, but there is a there is a place for all these pieces to fit together. When you look at something like Hadoop, for instance, back to that, one of the places it's actually been it's most successful so far is doing ETL. Oh, really? Uh, which is interesting because some people see Hadoop as a alternative to your data warehouses and OLAP and all this other technology mm-hmm. that's much more mature and widespread in widespread use. But uh, one of the places it's really taking off is to do the big data processing to pre-process things for your OLAP. So, for instance, reading in large uh, log files or things like that and then putting them into that uh, more structured format that you want in your OLAP system. And uh, this has actually been a a very successful area for that product, for that whole suite, for Hadoop and all of its tools, but it's certainly not the only one. Uh, But to a certain extent... I think that is the idea is that rather than investing so much up front, you can uh, try a few things and experiment a lot more mm-hmm. uh, using cheap hardware, using you know easier to use software, and get some really good results out of it. Now, the stuff I've done around HeyDoop is largely been dealing with massive numbers of log files, but we've done it on our own hardware, essentially, where we've taken a web farm with a service that was for test and imaged everything off of them, set them up with HeyDoop installations, distributed a terabyte worth of log files across them, and then crushed the numbers down into a set. You know, takes an evening, but it's an epic amount of data consolidation. Absolutely, and that's that's part of the the power of something like that. You you probably want to do further refinement and study of those uh, statistics and numbers when sure. that job is done. But certainly to pre-process it like that, it's really that's a classic the log file one, a classic example of volume. So there's just so much volume, and no matter what sort of database you're using, or tool set, or even SAN, and you can spend a lot of money on those you're really not going to have enough disks spinning fast enough to get the data to the machines to use them. Sure. And that is really the power of that idea, you know, the, of the of the HDFS and then the MapReduce sitting on top of it. So for folks who've never spent any time with Hadoop at all, let's sort of walk through the process. So, you know, this, the scenario I think I've painted is a pretty simple one. I have a, a terabyte of log data. When confronted with the prospect of loading it into SQL Server, I could not consider affording the licenses. And besides, it wasn't a good way to process it anyway. It was just going to make it way bigger. What does Hadoop do to do, uh, you know, sort of that analysis around that? So the, the the real key to this uh, and, why, and why it's so powerful for doing this really gets back to how it's all stored and how it works. Mm-hmm. If you look at older technologies like um, HPC technologies, 
you have, have a centralized shared storage, which is usually how databases work too, although they're most often on a SAN now. And it's a centralized shared storage and many different nodes are going to try to get the data off of that storage and then process it. The problem that happens there is that you get really a, a network contention issue, all of the nodes trying to pull the data from the same place. And uh, the only way around that is to build faster networks, which get very expensive very quick. You get into InfiniBand and all these other things that mm-hmm. are much more difficult to work with and extraordinarily expensive. And Hadoop turns that whole model on its head and instead slices up the data in storage. Instead of using a centralized shared storage, you use distributed shared storage. And each node in the cluster has its own subset of the data. And uh, the beautiful thing is that things like replication are handled by the file system for you. So uh, if you lose a node, which is expected in that uh, Hadoop ecosystem, the data is actually already on to other nodes just for backup. When it comes time for job processing, instead of pulling all the data to the nodes, the job itself is actually sent to the nodes where the data already resides. Right. And each node locally processes its own local subset of the data, and you get many more disks spinning, less network uh, traffic as a result, and really the only thing that crosses the network is the job on the way out and the results back on the way in. Now, getting that data set distributed all those machines sounds like the hard part then. Well, from a, from a technological standpoint, it, it certainly is. Uh, from a user standpoint, and I mean user as in some sort of operator or system administrator or or even you know an end user, mm-hmm. it's pretty transparent. So you don't really see all the magic that's happening, and that's kind of the beauty of it because the the storage and the HDFS is one great part of that story, but the other are the tools that sit even further on top of that, and that's really turning what we would think of as a a simple task into a very uh, powerful distributed algorithm. So instead of having to write programs explicitly to work on a distributed compute cluster like you would in the past, right. you just write them and, and they automatically, they rewrite themselves actually or get reinterpreted to distributed jobs. And am I writing SQL statements? You can. Uh, you can certainly do that with things like Hive, mm-hmm. which you can sit, which sits on top of Hadoop and as part of the whole ecosystem. Uh, you can write Python or JavaScript, uh, and there are, it's actually that's a, probably the biggest area of growth right now is the tooling that lets you put things on top of Hadoop, including uh, the ODBC driver for Excel, so you can connect Excel right to one of these clusters. Wow. Well, that's a tool everybody knows and loves. Uh, well, it is, and uh, you know, there's been a long time <laughs> programmers certainly hate it. I can say that from personal experience, uh, but it is a powerful tool, and there been many attempts to try and replace it with something better, but uh, business people know that tool and do well with it. Yeah. And you can't argue with pivot tables. I mean, I've I've hung OLAP databases in behind pivot tables in Excel, and it's made me sad, but boy, they get the work done. They do, and really, our, our jobs are about helping people get their work done. Uh, yeah. Other than a, a few computer nerds like myself, no one really cares what's happening or how it's happening. <laughs> they just care that their job's getting done. It's getting done. So you could actually do the same thing. This whole uh, You could have a, an array of machines in a Hadoop cluster uh, through Hive communicating to pivot tables in Excel. Absolutely. That's amazing. It's, and uh, licensing for the software, what's this going to cost us? Well, that's, it gets a little more complicated there. You have a lot of options. Uh, it depends which stack you're going on. Uh, it depends, you know, ideally you're, you know, going on the Microsoft stack. That's why you're, 
you're talking to us right now or listening to this. And uh, the the best part there is that you could license this with Windows and, 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 and pay the big upfront costs that you would in any sort of traditional project like this, but you can also pay an hourly cost by doing this in Azure, which right. is really a much more compelling case because not many companies have the need or the budget to stand up a large cluster that they're only going to use, you know, maybe a couple times a week or month. Yeah, especially when you could shut it all down again. The only problem I have with doing this on Azure is hauling that terabyte up there in the first place. That's true. Uh, but one thing you can do is use uh, uh, blob storage and just keep it up there. Right. So you only pay pulling back down from Azure. You don't pay putting it up. Oh, okay. So if you're streaming it in, you know, for instance, uh, hourly or nightly, whatever, however mm-hmm. you're copying your files over, then they're already there when you're ready to start. And you are paying for storage month to month while it's up there. Yes, you would pay all the time for the storage, but then you would only pay for the cluster while it's running. But uh, well, on the other side of this, if you're running the site in Azure in the first place, log files are already up there. Indeed, absolutely. Or whatever data you happen to be working on. All right, so if I'm doing this in Azure, what's different? Uh, the, the the differences in Azure are that the setup is literally down to seconds or maybe minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you basically just pick how many nodes you want in your cluster and how much storage you're going to need. And... Uh, give it a name and a password, and you're done. Uh, whereas if you did this on-premise, you're going to have to order machines. You're going to have to, they're going to be shipped to you, which is going to take more time and money. And by the way, you usually have to pay for them when you order them. Right. You're going to have to unpack them when they come, put them into a rack, configure the operating systems on all of them, and then configure them to stand as part of the Hadoop cluster. So you're actually talking about you know a pretty long process that's going to take at least days, and it's going to have a really... I, I said this to a friend the other day that you hit the trifecta of costs. There's capital, <laughs> uh, labor, and uh, time. Right. So you, you're really, you're really, you know, hurting a lot there for that. But the beautiful thing about doing this in Azure is that you can really just experiment more. And if you spend, you know, fifty dollars to see if there's a better pricing model for your insurance policies, that's not a big deal. No. Especially if there isn't. But if you spend $100,000 setting up a cluster and find out that there isn't a better pricing model, then you probably have to answer you know, to your organization for what you did with that money. Well, and I love this idea that now you can play this game. You know, you know exactly how long a Hadoop run took on Azure and how much it cost you. Now you can debate, would you be better off lighting up even more instances and shortening the time? Would that actually be a net savings in, in dollars or fewer instances for longer? Absolutely, and that's, that is... Part of the absolutely fascinating part about it is that if you look at a, you know, one computer could do something in 500 hours, yeah. and you can get 500 computers for one hour for the exact same cost. Right. Yeah. I don't know if the math actually works out that way, and I got to think that the performance doesn't work out that way either, that 500 computers aren't going to finish it in an hour, then maybe I finish it in an hour and a half or two hours. Yeah, it's, it's not exactly linear. Yeah, and it never is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and there's still Windows licenses involved in all this, although I guess at Azure that's taken care of, right? Yes, for the Azure part it's taken care of, uh, but you can actually now run Hadoop on Windows. And I uh, I actually met with the CTO of uh, Hortonworks recently mm-hmm. at a conference, and he was uh, he had nothing but amazing things to say about Microsoft and what a great partner they've actually been for helping that ecosystem and choosing to work with the open source community. And uh, he was really excited about the prospect of a whole new user base being able to use Windows, even their on-premise Windows servers, and run Hadoop on top of them. 
And so and I'm just thinking through how Azure actually works here. So you basically would have a template configuration, more or less just a VM image of, mm-hmm. hey, Deep already installed on a Windows box that you can light up as many of those as you need. Uh, that's certainly one way you could do it. That's probably the way I would recommend at this mm-hmm. time. But there is the HD Insight, uh, which is in beta right now, which is really sort of uh, Hadoop as a service on Azure, which is uh, really, that's the that's kind of really the exciting part, the, the most exciting part to me, because it's the least amount of technical work up front. So this is HD Insight? Yeah, it used to be called Hadoop on Azure. Okay. but And this is new, just just getting going, right? I think it went into beta, what was that, October 26th, I think was the date. All right. So you could um, you could it, experiment with this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can, where is the... Let's see. I think it's under Microsoft's business intelligence portal. You can find a link to it and uh, play with it online. And uh, it's it's really fun, actually. It's uh, it's surprising how how easy some of this really is. And so what's the HD Insight server do differently from building your own image? Uh, well, HD Insight is uh, the collection of, of Hadoop pieces for Windows. Right. But doing the service actually enlists all the servers for you. So you don't have to configure anything. You just pick how many you want and how much data, which basically equates to how much you're going to get charged. And then you start it up and it instantly starts up and you can control the cluster right through the uh, Azure management portal. Right. It's, it's very, very slick. It, it takes away the barriers that, I mean, what's fundamentally going on here is extremely complex stuff, mm-hmm. but it's been made so easy that just about anyone can do it. If, if you can order a book online, then you can set up a, a Hadoop cluster. Right. The, the bigger thing here is actually getting useful information out of it. Absolutely. So is there any rules around how you structure your Hadoop data in the first place? I mean, we kept talking about log files, but what else could I feed to it? Um, well, what's interesting from my Microsoft standpoint is that you can actually pull right from SQL Server. Mm-hmm. And so that can be a source for your Hadoop cluster, All right. would be SQL Server. So highly structured data in that case. You can use uh, files for things that are semi-structured uh, or even uh, media files. For instance, a, a video file is actually highly structured data. It's just not very searchable. Right. But you could still use it. So if you wanted to do facial recognition or things like that, it's actually a pretty good way to do it. Something tells me you're not writing a SQL expression to do that. No, then you're not. You're getting a little more complex there, but that's where you would probably use things like Python. Sure. But then I guess it's, you know, we still got to deal with the core issue here, Dan, which is why would I just do this all in SQL Server? Like given that, that I don't have to, you know, I'm not concerned about licensing constraints or costs or anything like that. What have you got for me that adds a, that I need to learn a new language in a new distribution environment? Well, it's really the scalability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, SQL Server is a great tool for set-based operations. It's not necessarily a great tool. I think the facial recognition one's a great example. Mm-hmm. SQL Server is not going to do that really well. No. Um, you probably could make it because yeah. you can basically make SQL Server do anything. Sure. We've got a .NET um, interface inside of SQL Server. I could be making a call for each one of those blobs to a service that could do facial recognition. Absolutely. But... Um, SQL Server probably won't be too happy about it. Mm. It's probably not the best tool to do it with. And more importantly, uh, even when you're writing something like Python or any of these other languages that eventually run on Hadoop, you're not having to write it as a parallel program. The parallelization happens uh, for you. Right. So uh, when you when we go back to like the SQL example with uh, with Hive, 
the example I like to use is summing a trillion numbers. If you, you could put a trillion rows in a table in SQL Server and do a sum on it, yep. and it's going to take forever. Uh, but if you do that in Hadoop, it's actually going to break it down into a bunch of smaller programs that go get a bunch of intermediate sums. Yep. And it's going to happen much, much faster. Now, so I that's could really take, what you're getting. I'm going to fight back on the SQL Server side and say, hey, I can federate a bunch of SQL servers together and distribute that table across the federated servers and do that query as well. Well, so it's becoming more expensive now when you do that. Yep. Uh, and the management is becoming more expensive. I don't mean from a license. I mean from a labor mm-hmm. and overhead and management standpoint. But also from a hardware standpoint, because as we mentioned, if you're, if you're doing this, you probably need shared storage uh, so that you have reliability and you have failover. Uh, and uh, you go out and buy even a, even a cheap NAS system, let yep. alone a SAN. And you start getting really expensive really quick. But all the all the SQL stuff I do nowadays in support of BizTalk or other things almost always involves a SAN, and that's always the most expensive part Absolutely. of the entire system. So I could use SQL Azure for this, and and I have to federate because the SQL Azure instances are relatively small. I think fifty gigs. So no, precisely, oh. and you and you would have to federate, and that's yeah. what we get out of Hadoop is the ability to scale to truly big data, mm-hmm. and not just uh, terabytes but into petabytes, you know, and, and huge, huge sets of data that really, uh, the only reason I think more people don't have right now is because they're having to, they're purposely having to trim and delete their data pretty quickly because the cost of storage is so high. Yeah. So if you reduce the cost of storage, you take that part out of the equation, and that's kind of what you're getting out of all of this. Consolidate early and often. <laughs> yes, and this is an idea to let you not have to make those consolidation decisions. Right. Uh, not that I mean they are good decisions to make, and and most of those policies in place today are there for a reason. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that reason tends to be just for cost. Right. And yeah, the the, the nice thing here is I can shut down all those Hadoop instances when I'm not doing computing. I'm going to continue to pay for storage, but that's not that much. Yeah, not compared to running a bunch of servers. Yeah, especially when, well, the interesting thing is when you get into petabyte scale, like just physically storing a petabyte is hard. It's a lot of data. It is. It's a huge amount of data. It's it's hard to get our our heads around how big that is. Yeah, well, Western Digital just today released, they announced their four terabyte hard drive. So if you want a petabyte, <laughs> you only need 250 of those. <laughs> You've got a case that'll hold them, right? Yeah, exactly. Only 250. Only. But I guess a petabyte is actually physically feasible to store in the cloud. I guess I, yeah, that's a great question. I don't, I've never tried to store a petabyte in the cloud. Um, I've never tried to store it, but I think I have tried to price it. <laughs> <laughs> but that, you know, gets down to the truth of these kinds of numbers. Like, where can, where can we, add, you know, how do you transfer a petabyte? One byte at a time, nice. I'd say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this might go over your Wi-Fi limit or your, your 3G limit. <laughs> Remember when they said you had unlimited data? They lied. All right, where are we going from here? This I I get the idea that I can write my computational uh, piece of this in a lot of different ways, and Hadoop's just going to take care of distributing it. Uh, you only mentioned Python and Hive, which is SQL-ish. Uh, what other techniques are people using coming coming back to what skills people are already have uh well you can write in MapReduce, which is very very low level uh very few people actually do that though uh almost almost nobody mm-hmm. uh so if you look at the 
early sort of movers on on Hadoop like uh, uh, Yahoo or Facebook. They're not writing in in MapReduce, which is basically writing Java. Right. Uh, they're they're relying instead on higher level languages to do that. But this is actually the biggest area of, of growth is which which languages and platforms are available. So uh, this is kind of the, the the explosive area right now. Uh, some of the tools are going to be things like uh, like Pig to let you do more traditional data warehousing mm-hmm. type structures that are just imposed on top of the data. Getting back to this idea that this could be part of your ETL process. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's something that's going to fit into your current ecosystem. It's not it's not going to replace anything. It's going to uh, work with things and and add some capability. But this also gets back to I mean, how many data warehouses are up in the cloud? Doesn't it make a lot of sense to run this yourself? That's a good question. Uh, it, it's it's tough to say if that's really the, the right fit. I think when you look at really giant big data, mm-hmm. it's probably, so when you're getting into that uh, petabyte area, it's probably still a better idea to run it yourself. Yeah. But when you look at, uh, you know, terabytes of data, which is much more common, mm-hmm. then you're actually probably getting a price benefit from not running it yourself. Uh, have you tinkered much with bringing in sort of external sources of data for doing the uh, analytics stuff like the demographic data the U.S. government publishes? Like there's all these interesting chunks of data out there you can consolidate with your own. Uh, there are actually. Uh, the census data is a really good source for anyone looking to play with uh, big data. There are some other ones too. The, the St. Louis Fed hmm. released uh, 20,000 financial data sets. Um, and that's actually, I believe that's up on Amazon. And it's free. You can download it. It's about, I think it's about a terabyte. And uh, you can, you know, do all of the, any sort of computational finance that you want to do or uh, uh, economic models off of that. So that's actually a pretty hot area right now. Well, and just, you know, what do you learn about your customer when you sort of could join them with this kinds of data sets? There's, there's new stuff that tends to pop out of that. Uh, absolutely. You get a much deeper understanding. Uh, it, it's, you're really talking about a multi-dimensional analysis uh, and not just a few dimensions uh, and not, not just in places that you know, but really exploratory uh, analysis. So looking in totally different places for relationships that really no one may know exist yet and almost into machine learning and, and pieces like that where mm-hmm. you start to get pretty exciting. Well, I think that's where this this really gets interesting. You And you talked about this right at the beginning of the show, this going after stuff you don't know, taking all these different sets of data. Can we do these sort of, but I, I've done this in OLAP, but the data mining algorithms that show correlations you don't necessarily see yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you're getting a lot more um a lot more tools in the ecosystem to do this. For instance, there's mm-hmm. a there's a data platform for for R, which is an open source uh, you know, analytics package uh, that's being made for Hadoop. So you can use these deep statistical analysis tools, which are are really you know complex analysis tools, and start using them on something like Hadoop without having to understand parallel programming, without having to understand too much more, and you're getting without having to understand too much more about how the computers are actually working, but getting closer to actually doing, you know, pure research or pure mathematics rather than just uh, programming. Well, and and therein lies the balancing act, which is what is the talent set I really need to make this work? Is it a developer's job? As soon as you said Python, I was thinking developer. When it's SQL, now I've got a little more flexibility for the people that I'm using. 
yeah, I would actually say that the, the way that I see this sort of breaking out, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not seeing here and being creative. I'm just seeing that companies like Microsoft are going to make this easier. They already yeah. are. Is that it's less and less of a developer, and even less and less of a system administrator, and more and more of an end user. Right. It's sort of if you go back to the uh, the self service BI wave that has been happening over the last two or three years. This is like the next extension of that, only with even much deeper capabilities. Would you call them analysts? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Okay. So, I mean, guys who are really trying to search data to find opportunities for the business can get in there and and work uh, with this stuff. But it still feels to me like they don't have access to all the keys to this. We are, as IT people, going to have to facilitate. Oh, without a doubt. And I think think the... The exciting part here, or the good part here, is that uh, we'll still have jobs, yes, but they'll be more focused on on delivering value than on uh, just do, doing the plumbing. Yeah, I haven't worried uh, about yeah. my job for a long time. The amount of work seems to be only going up, not down. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I, uh, I actually read a great study about two weeks ago that mentioned that uh, data warehousing projects are actually expected to grow even more in the future, even with Hadoop coming into the right. ecosystem. Uh, so it's not like we're cutting back on anything. No, it's you just see, it sounds to me like there's a, real, there's a really interesting synergy between Hadoop and data warehousing, that I can be using Hadoop to help doing ETL into the data warehouse, and then the data warehouse becomes a source of data for more Hadoop analysis. Absolutely. That's an interesting way to look at it. So for folks who are just considering digging into big data and this whole model, uh, what's the starting point? Where should they go first? I really think that Hadoop on Azure uh, is a great place to start uh, mm-hmm. because you don't need to know anything about setting up Hadoop clusters. Uh, you can go play with the product. You can get a free data set from uh, any of the open source or open uh, uh, providers like uh, the St. Louis Fed or a lot of universities and you can uh, run some basic queries over it and see what you think and play around with it and you know get some ideas for for what might be more practical for for your organization. And it sounds to me like even if you start on the Azure side if you decide you need to do it in-house as well there's nothing you're doing there that's going to preclude you from pulling it inside as well. Yeah, absolutely not. The two kind of go together and that's a it's an interesting outcome to all this. It's only been a year or so since the first announcements of Microsoft working with Hadoop, it seems to have come a long way. Uh, it, it really does. It's, it's pretty amazing, especially considering that Microsoft didn't branch off from the uh, the core code base, right. the open source core code base, which is amazing because they still have co- uh, compatibility now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and you know, there's a whole other topic here, which is the, the Microsoft research project known as Dryad, which uh, in some ways seemed to be a Hadoop competitor. That is another show. Yeah. Dan uh, Rosanova, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. <laughs>